Hey, welcome to The Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. Well, guys, we are going through a series that is based around our verse for 2024, which is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a phrase within a larger sermon that Jesus shares on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. It's three chapters of sermon. It's a really big and important teaching. And it's actually Jesus' longest group of teachings in all four Gospels. And our amazing set design team, I don't know, I'm going to try and get out of the way so everyone can see it, have done an amazing job. They've um, created this museum of treasures, these three things which are somewhat symbolic of different areas of our life that we can idolize and elevate as treasures. We've got the humble dumbbell, which I won't try to lift up. I'll leave that for Mitch. But the humble dumbbell, it's our fitness. It's our well-being. It's maybe our physical appearance in looking super fit for Instagram. We've got our trophy in the middle, which is quite sort of fitting for a church that runs a sports center. This could represent a lot of things, our achievements and goals in life. Maybe whether Parramatta Eels finally win the grand final this year. I know there's some people who probably elevate their team winning the grand final quite high on their treasures and interests. And finally, a briefcase. A briefcase, which can represent a lot of things. Kind of obviously wealth can represent status and power. And these are just three of many symbols that could represent many treasures in our lives, couldn't they? These things, which actually, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. None of them are bad. It's just that when they are elevated to a point where they're beyond God and start to get in between us and our relationship with God and maybe even us and our relationship with others, then they start to become problematic. But there's nothing actually wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. So we've sort of been looking at a very 30,000-foot view of treasure, and we're kind of slowly coming in and landing the plane. And we're not going to land the plane today where we start to look more specifically at different types of treasures that we can have in our lives. But I want to explore something today, which my absolute crazy essay, sorry, it was way too long in the pastor's desk on Friday, sort of started to point towards this idea of the good life. The good life. Why do I talk about the good life? Because this is something that secular philosophers and psychologists talk about, about happiness, about well-being, about flourishing, about the good life. The eudaimonia is the Greek word. You meaning good, daimon actually meaning like demon spirit, but good spirit, a good spirit, to have a good spirit in you, to live the good life. So I want to explore today, what is the secret to the good life? What is the secret to the good life? Because I think all of these things can fool us into thinking that that's the good life, that if we just pin all our hopes and our dreams and our time and our efforts on maybe one of these things, maybe another treasure in our lives, then that is going to lead to the good life. But Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what is the secret to the good life? It's an interesting question, isn't it? And I know that Lizzie Taylor, when she shared her testimony a few weeks back, which was so good, she spoke about how she read hundreds of self-help books over the years, exploring this question of happiness, of well-being, of flourishing, of what is the good life. And her estimation was all of the answers that she found in the secular world ended up coming up short. 
And I think it's really important for us to be cultural critics. That sounds like a, a big sort of title to have to wear, cultural critic. But I think it's really important as we're looking at the world, as we're looking at different worldviews and different values and different treasures, that we're able to critically engage with them and say, what are they offering and what aren't they offering that a relationship with God does? Really important questions. I was at the park a few weeks ago with George, my son, and there was this young man there who probably would have been 19, and he was just standing around the park in the middle of the day. It was about 11 a.m. on a Saturday. He just seemed incredibly lonely, is the reality of it, guys. He seemed incredibly lonely, and he was very keen for a conversation. He started chatting to me, and I started hearing a bit about his interests and his worldviews, and he said that he was fascinated with philosophy. And he said that he particularly, after I asked him, who's your favourite philosopher? He said, oh, well, I really like Marcus Aurelius, who's this Stoic philosopher. He was a Roman emperor and a Stoic philosopher. I go, oh, well, what would you like about him? And he started telling me about how these teachings, this worldview, has really taught him to leave the good life. And I think Stoicism, interestingly, has become incredibly popular in this next generation coming up, particularly with young men, because there are these really interesting values of self-deprivation, of you know, saying no to oneself, of not getting caught up in the past or the future, being now in the present. I mean, they sound like some good things. But ultimately, there was something falling short. And I want to look at today a really interesting article by Miroslav Volf, who he's a really, really smart Christian dude, much smarter than me, who is actually the head of theology at Yale University. And what he does is he looks at these two philosophers in this article, Seneca, who's a big father of Stoicism, and Nietzsche, and sort of critiques what their beliefs are to the good life, the eudaimonia, how to flourish, and where they fall short. I want to share that with you this morning. So the first one, I want to look at is, oh, sorry, just want to quickly pick out um, the secret, the stoic secret to the good life. This is what we want to be looking at first. So Seneca, let me get into it. He was uh, actually mentor for Nero, the Roman emperor, for quite a few years. And he said, true happiness is to enjoy the present without anxious dependence upon the future, not to amuse ourselves with either hopes or fears, but to rest satisfied with what we have, which is sufficient. For he that is so wants nothing. In simple terms, keep calm and carry on is the Seneca model, right? This is this stoic idea of we don't get worried about the past, we don't get worried about the future, we be present in the moment, we keep calm and we carry on. Again, just like any of these treasures, like not a bad idea in and of itself. But I'm here to suggest, and really it's just echoing Miroslav Volf's much more eloquent argument that is something that's severely missing in this idea. That this, if we are going to rest our foundation to build upon this idea, this stoic idea and value of keep calm and carry on, the things are going to fall short. Because this idea of keeping calm and carrying on is not foreign to Christianity. In fact, Jesus, in another part in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, 31 to 34, says, So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Okay, 
So Jesus doesn't disagree with this idea, but I think that there's more to offer than just that in the biblical worldview, in the Christian worldview. And I think that this passage that Cam read from this morning is really, really important to look at the heart of where Christianity offers something that Stoicism falls short, which is love. In 1 John 4, 7 to 8, John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God because God is love. Interesting enough, the passage that Em and I chose for our wedding sermon. And then Miroslav Volf, I've distilled his ideas down to a really bite-sized idea. This is his central critique of Stoicism. He says, if we believe that God is love, as we've just read in 1 John 4, 8, and that we are created for love, the Stoic ideal of tranquil self-sufficiency will not do. Our concern will then be not just to lead life well ourselves. Instead, if we are Christian and believe in this idea, is we'll strive for life to go well for our neighbours and for them to lead their lives well and acknowledge that their flourishing is deeply tied to our flourishing. Put simply, his critique is there's more to the good life than personal peace. There is more to the good life than our own personal peace that when we are only focused on the inward and our own mental and spiritual state even perhaps, that that's not fully encapsulating the whole idea of the Christian command to love your neighbour as yourself. This is part of it. Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace. He wants us to experience that peace, but there's so much more. And this is why I want to jump forward to the second of the two ideas that I want to explore this morning, because I think Stoicism and existentialism are these two core ideas that people really hold true today. The first one, Stoicism being keep calm and carry on. That's how we'll attain inner peace. The next one, existentialism, comes from Friedrich Nietzsche. And put simply, he writes this. It is the richness of a personality, the fullness of it, its power to flow over and to bestow, its instinctive feeling of ease and its affirming attitude towards itself that creates great love and great sacrifices. These passions proceed from strong and godlike personalism as surely as do the desire to be master, to obtrude, and the inner certainty that one has a right to everything. Hmm. How would I distill that down into a catchy, bite-sized idea. Live your truth. That's essentially what Nietzsche is saying. Live your truth. If you know who you are, if you discover your own personal identity, then it'll be great. Everything will flow on well from there. If you know who you are in yourself, everything else will follow because you are entitled to everything because your truth is the absolute truth. That's the idea of existentialism. I think there might be more to Jesus's teachings than just our own self-actualization being the core to our happiness. And this is the idea that we really need to be critiquing in this model. Because yes, the Bible does explore this idea in 1 Corinthians that we are unique individuals and from their flourishing comes. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, 
second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. What he's saying is flourishing comes from when we know what our gifting is, who we are in God. But what is intrinsically enwound in all of those ideas? People's identity is defined by how they're interacting with others, <laughs> the gift that they are giving to others, the gift that they are sharing with others. This idea is outward-focused, not inward-focused. And this is so, so important because this is what Miroslav Volf has to critique about existentialism, that if we believe that God is love and that we are created for love, we will reject the notion that flourishing consists in being experientially satisfied, experiencing and living my truth. But instead of our slogan being let us eat and drink or a more sophisticated version of the same that privileges higher pleasures, it should be let us give and pray. Because the secret to the good life isn't inner peace, although inner peace is something that Jesus offers. And the secret to the good life isn't self-actualization, and knowing who you truly are at your core, even though that is something that Jesus also offers. But the Christian secret to the good life is something a little bit different. There's a really interesting moment in the Gospel of Luke where a teacher of the law asks Jesus a very simple <laughs> but very difficult question. He goes, hey, Jesus, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. Which of them is the most important? Mm. Okay. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says in verse 26 of Luke 10, what is written in the law? Jesus replies, how do you read it? And this expert of the law answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replies. Do this and you'll live. Now, there's a really interesting next part to this story that I haven't included in the slides. Because the expert of the law tries to justify himself and goes, okay, you want me to love my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Is it my next-door neighbour? Is it the neighbour who lives within the four walls of the city as me? Is it the neighbour who lives on the same bit of land floating in the ocean as me? Who is my neighbour? And I'm going to slightly recontextualise a very famous parable that Jesus shares about the parable of the Good Samaritan. I want to read this to you. Jesus replied, A man was catching the metro down to Chatswood when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A pastor happened to hop on the train, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Baptist, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Muslim, as she hopped on the train, came where the man was, and when she saw him, she took pity on him. She went to him and bandaged his wounds. Then she put the man in her own car, brought him to a hostel and took care of him. The next day, 
She took out a hundred bucks and gave it to the hostel. Look after him, she said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Because Jesus actually doesn't just call us to love our neighbors. As Mitch suggested earlier, he calls us to do something much more challenging, much greater, to love our enemies. In Matthew 5, 43 to 48, the Sermon of the Mount, once again, he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? That's easy. And not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't know about you, but that feels like a countercultural message. I don't know about you, but that feels like maybe a philosophy that a very lonely boy at a park on a Saturday morning couldn't help but be struck by. Not really have much of a response because it's a teaching that is not really found in any of the other worldviews and any of the other philosophies that people desperately seek to understand what the good life is. Not just loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor, but loving your enemy. Whew. That's a strangely countercultural, strangely attractive way to live life, isn't it? I wonder what this space would look like if all of us, me included, <laughs> genuinely started loving our enemies praying for those who persecute us, turning the other cheek when someone strikes us, giving someone our coat when they steal our shirt, loving our enemies. So Mitch spoke about last week how throughout these series we want to explore application of this idea that we explore each week through our seven centres. So the first centre I want to look at, I'm going to look at three as I wrap up, is being prayer-centred. Is there an enemy? I think it's helpful to put that in inverted commas because <laughs> I think we probably have a lot more enemies in our life than we care to admit on a sliding scale. A lot more people who we struggle with, a lot more people who grind our gears, a lot more people who we don't see eye to eye with and don't show full unconditional love to. Is there an enemy that needs prayer because... The God we worship tells us to. Second thought being relationship-centered. Is there a relationship in your life that needs to be repaired? Maybe through God's help, you can start to show that love that only comes from our creator. We can only do it through his strength. We cannot do this alone. It's about not just extending ourselves to someone else, but continuing to be formed into a closer likeness of Christ. And finally, mission-centered. 
I'm going to give you some homework. Yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> I'm that guy. I'll give you some homework this week. I'm going to give you an excuse. You can blame me for this, right? Talk to someone who you know doesn't have the same worldview as you. They don't need to be an enemy by any means. And say, hey, my pastor gave me some homework. Sorry. It's annoying, but just got to do it. What do you think is the secret to happiness? Like quite literally softly bite your tongue as, they, as they're talking. Actually just listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth. Listen. Actually let them talk. If they need to talk for 15 minutes to explain what is the secret to happiness, give them that 15 minutes. And then once they have shared and they have finished and they feel like they've thoroughly expressed themselves, ask, okay, great. How does that affect the way you live? And once again, gently bite your tongue and listen. Do not interrupt. Let them speak until they are finished. It's a trait that we are sometimes not very good at. And then once they are absolutely finished, Hmm. thanks for sharing that's really really interesting because we're looking at on Sunday how Jesus said the secret to happiness is to love God big words just leave that because they expect that (laughs) love God and to love your enemies what do you think about that Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that your secret to the good life is the one that brings true flourishing, that brings true well-being, that brings true happiness, not just to us, but to others. Jesus, we thank you that you are the ultimate philosopher, that you are the ultimate teacher. And God, we just pray this morning that if there is someone in this space who wants to start living this life, who isn't living this life right now and wants to experience what the good life according to God, according to Jesus, according to your Holy Spirit looks like, I pray right now with every eye closed and every head bowed, that they might just put their hand up and go, hey, I want to commit to this countercultural way of living. I want to commit to this way of living which truly leads to flourishing, to well-being, to happiness. And God, I just pray that for anyone this morning who would feel that that is a calling for them to step into not just their truth, but your truth, God, the ultimate truth, that they would speak with someone afterwards and say, hey, I want to start to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus because, God, we understand that it is only when we do that that we can experience the true good life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you 
as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.